handicap the big vote coming up in Congress this morning. I called up CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland to ask him what makes today's vote different from last week's. Well, they're going to try to do it through brute political force, which makes it different than the rest of the back and forth we've seen over the past couple of weeks. Every indication is that Jim Jordan, the Ohio firebrand, the Trump loyalist, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, is going to bring this to the floor after 12 p.m. Eastern time, 9 a.m. local time, and try to do this through some type of public shaming to take the remaining holdouts, the remaining uncommitted House Republicans, and shine that bright spotlight of the national TV cameras and the conservative base and try to get them to come through. He's made progress over the past 72 hours, getting a lot of the former supporters of Steve Scalise and Kevin McCarthy, the people who had said they were never going to vote for Jim Jordan. He's brought them over, but there are a few more he needs to get to get to the magic number of 217. Okay, so this is going to be a... uh... A roll call vote. And so how I'm curious. So how will the public I mean, I watch C-SPAN a lot. Uh, how does the public shaming actually work? It's going to be the title of my memoirs. I watch C-SPAN a lot, too. Um, <laughs> it's alphabetical order. So you do this one person at a time. They stand up alphabetically by last name and say who they're voting for. All the Democrats will vote for Hakeem Jeffrey. They'll get 212 votes no matter what. But. Jim Jordan needs to get 217, half of all members of the U.S. House. And there are a few contrarians in the early part of the alphabet. Ken Buck of Colorado, Don Bacon of Nebraska, Mario Diaz-Balart of Florida. And if he loses three or four votes off the top, as is expected, it's clear, as the rest of the alphabet is read, that he doesn't have the numbers he needs to clinch it. That may liberate some others later in the alphabet to say, you know what? No, I'm not voting for him either. It's not going to happen on this vote, so I want to go on the record the right way. And if it goes through a first vote without succeeding, does some of Jim Jordan's newfound support become soft? Does some of these people who are having their arms twisted over the weekend say, I'm with you on one vote, but I'm not mm-hmm. sticking with you on two, three, four, and five. We're hearing from CBS's Scott McFarland, who's going to be monitoring the uh, vote, which is clearly being played for maximum drama. So I asked him what the floor reaction would be if a member votes for somebody other than Jim Jordan. A chorus of boos, uh, instant speeches of condemnation, what? Somewhere in between. So it's not a no vote so much as, Let's say Don Bacon of Nebraska will stand up and say, you know, Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise. I'm sticking with my previous guy. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not, obviously, McCarthy and Scalise wouldn't get sufficient votes to win, but that's a contrarian vote that keeps Jim Jordan from getting to 217. What happens to those people? Quite likely, they'll get lit up on social media by the MAGA community. Um, they'll get calls to their office, inspired by people like Sean Hannity um, and other conservatives who are trying to stoke the fire for Jim Jordan. And yeah, they may catch a little bit of heck on the floor from some of their colleagues. There may be some hisses and boos, but that's what happened when Kevin McCarthy was being uh, voted on 15 times in January. And it itself didn't win those guys over, but it's a a different constituency, right, Dave? I mean, in January, it was the Freedom Caucus hardliners saying no to Kevin McCarthy. Now, it's the moderates, people who deem themselves to be problems ah, and, and, and fence menders who are saying no. That's a whole different dynamic. But the moderates are not ticked off enough to stand up and say Hakeem Jeffries. No, um, that would be um, that would be a bridge too far. But, you know, they're, they're also getting baited here, Dave. These moderates, these these, um, you know, 
people who may exist in Biden congressional districts are getting called out by conservatives who are taunting them. You don't have the spine to stand up to Jim Jordan. You're going to buckle when we pressure you because moderates always buckle. And to a degree, some of them appear to have buckled over the weekend pressure campaign. But those who remain are going to get called out. And let's see if they (laughs) stick to it or yield. And what kind of a speaker will Jim Jordan be? I mean, Kevin McCarthy famously lost his job because he compromised, thinking it was more important to keep the government open than save his job. Is Jordan the kind of guy who'll do that? One of the pitches his surrogates have been making is that he knows how to reach out to those Freedom Caucus defectors who often block plans to keep the government open, Uh plans to raise the debt ceiling, plans to avoid catastrophe, that he speaks their language because they're members of a Freedom Caucus Jim Jordan helped found. Ah. But being a speaker is different than being a rabble-rouser. Being a speaker is different than being uh, a a flamethrower. We'll see how that stands up for him if he gets the job. Really? So he's saying, I talk their language so I can bring them around to sanity. I can control Matt Gates, which nobody else has figured out how to do so far. Um, Part of the pitch. Well, we'll see what happens. Scott McFarland, CBS News. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Dick. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. So, uh, Colleen is working from home because she has uh, walking COVID. Very high functioning, but uh, she's testing positive. I've just gotten uh, all my shots. So let's go to Dr. Keith Jerome, who's the head of the UW Virology Lab. Um, first of all, what is our current uh, COVID status as a nation, Dr. Jerome? We're sort of in our steady state, Dave. There are certainly cases. Um, we're seeing sort of a, a baseline of cases. We had kind of that big bump in late summer. It seems to be pretty stable. It's come down a bit. Um, you know, we we watch the local uh, testing that we do. We're still still doing four to six hundred tests a day. Uh, about three to five percent are positive. But, of course, most people are getting diagnosed at home with rapid tests and so forth. So we didn't have a great sense. You know, we also follow the wastewater. That seems pretty stable. So mm-hmm. I think we're sort of bouncing around um, probably in our new reality. Yeah. So with this current strain of COVID, if if somebody who has not been vaccinated gets it, are the symptoms still serious or is this milder? Oh, I think this is still serious COVID. If somebody's never had COVID and never been vaccinated this could be very, very serious. Of course, there are getting to be fewer and fewer people in that category. Uh, lots of folks have been vaccinated. Lots of people have had COVID and lots of mm-hmm. people both, of course. Um, so part of the reason why so many people have walking COVID or mild COVID is because we have built up immunity to it, much like we have the other coronaviruses that have been around for decades and centuries. So, it's it's sort of um, evolving towards becoming just a bad cold. Is that what you're saying? Well, I, whether it's I mean, it is definitely evolving. Of course, we as a population are evolving, too, in the sense that we have immunity. So I think for a lot of folks, it's going to be a relatively um, mild disease. And by that, I mean, that's all relative to what COVID was like at the beginning. Right. With a very serious and sometimes life threatening illness. Um, we'll see less and less of that. But people are still being hospitalized. There's no doubt about that. And that's really the number that we we really tend to follow to really detect when there's another 
big bump. But I hopefully for most folks who have some immunity now, it'll be uh, just a really, really bad cold yeah. um, and kind of make people on the sofa and not want to go to work, but certainly not be life threatening. But the hospitals are not experiencing a, uh, a surge they, they can't deal with. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, nothing right now that we can't deal with. There's certainly people in the hospital, but the system is not at any kind of breaking point at all. Yeah. Now, my next question is about uh, the, the possibilities of vaccination interactions. I've never been vaccinated so many times in my life. I went to uh, <laughs> a Rite Aid right before they declared bankruptcy. And uh, and so I got the let's see if I can remember all this. I got the new covid. I got the SARS. I got the pneumococcal. And uh, I also got my first of two shingles shots, and I get the other one, I think, in in a week or so. And so far, except for all the needle marks in my left arm, uh, I'm doing fine. So, <laughs> good. Have you have you? Not, are there any uh, anecdotal reports, however, of other people who get a reaction when they when they have all these needles being stuck in their arms? People have things that happen to them, and sometimes those things happen shortly after they get the vaccines, right? So it's 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 human nature to ascribe whatever I'm experiencing now to whatever I did yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very, very difficult to prove causality and that kind of thing. And that's why we do these big trials to really follow people in a very scientifically rigorous way to see whether people who have gotten the vaccine have more of those symptoms, side effects, whatever you want to call them, than people who, who haven't. And in general... We, we know what people get, right? I mean, you know, a lot of people feel kind of down the next day after they get their COVID vaccine. That's that's evidence of the body's immune system fighting or kind of revving up. And that's what we want. So sometimes I look at that like a good thing. It means that my body's reacting and, and I'm going to be able to fight off the virus uh, better next time. In terms of it, it is a lot of vaccines. Um it's it's a lot of diseases that we'd rather not get. Shingles is a terrible thing for many people, and, and I bet you some of your listeners have experienced that. And people tell horrible stories of having that's the chickenpox virus, or right. waking up after decades, and it can be very painful and really debilitating, and 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 and, and can have long term side effects. So you'd much rather have a shot than that. And you know, pneumococcus obviously people die of pneumococcal pneumonia. Um, every year. So these are things we want to get. Um, you can certainly get the flu and the COVID vaccine on the same day. That's that's well well shown. You can also decide to get them in different days if you want. It's just sort of too much. So uh, people can talk to their doctors or make their own decision. But in terms of wearing ourselves out from getting three or four or five vaccines over you know a couple of years, it's really not going to be a problem. Yeah. Also got my flu shot. I left that one out. So what is that? Five, <laughs> six and all? I don't know. Uh, all right. So the other part of your job as a virologist is to anticipate the next horrible thing coming down the pike. Is is that system of early detection intact? And are you, in fact, monitoring any more novel viruses that are out there? Well, there's certainly the there's certainly the the wastewater monitoring for covid. And the idea there is to you can sort of see a bump in the amount of virus in wastewater before we see a bump in cases. So it's sort of an early warning. And you know, the other thing we try to do is see if there's any novel variants there. So we actually sequence out of that. Um Right now, you know, we're not really seeing those bumps, nor are we seeing any new variants in the wastewater. So that's all good. In terms of 
what other viruses out there that's actually become a little bit controversial which is interesting hmm. um some people feel that kind of going around the world and looking for other viruses that might be the next pandemic might in itself be a risky proposition could really? the workers get infected or something and um you know uh, so maybe just ignorance is bliss i, I I, I I think I would prefer to know what's out there, but, um, you know, people are making that argument. Dr. Keith Jerome, director of the UW Virology Lab. Dr. Jerome, thanks very much. Oh, always a pleasure, Dave. Take care. Choke oh, points. Let's go. Grab bag edition. Let's start with the proposal for higher tolls, Chris. And this one, uh, we first reported in May that the Washington State Transportation Commission has been considering raising the rates on the tolling corridor from Linwood to Puyallup on 405 and 167. Those routes hit their maximums frequently, 9 bucks on 167 and 10 bucks on 405. And those prices just aren't enough to keep people from paying their way in. There are times where congestion is just as bad in the toll lane as it is in the general purpose lane. So the commission's going to vote this afternoon on whether to start the public outreach process, which includes in-house researching of the impacts of raising the prices and what they might look like. The max toll rates could go up to 15 bucks or higher on both 167 and 405 to help manage the congestion. The commission is also looking at extending the hours for the peak HOV requirements. Those, of course, coming with the three plus requirement, meaning that people with two plus would no longer be considered HOV. Now, these changes would all come online if approved in 2025 when the entire corridor is built out. And we have basically an express toll lane system from Linwood down to Puyallup. But one interesting change to watch in this is going to be the potential segmenting of the toll system. Right now, what you see when you get in is what you pay, right? Because there's only that one real segment from Bellevue to uh, Linwood or from Puyallup to Renton. Well, Right now, if they when they fill in that middle, what the Seattle Times is reporting is that you could end up paying three max tolls along the way. So you might get a max from Linwood to Bellevue, another max from Bellevue to Renton, and then a third max from Renton to Puyallup, which could be at top prices fifty four dollars to get for in the, one way for one way. So it would be segmented. So there would be three distinct segments that would wow. each have their own potential max toll. Now, uh, they said that the, this might not be very likely because it's not often that all three of those corridors would be at a max at the same time. But again, let's not forget that we were told we would rarely hit the $10 max ever when the 405 system started, and we hit it almost daily. So we're going to be watching this. This would all take effect in 2025, whatever they're going to spend the next year trying to figure this out, what the exact uh, sweet spot is there. But yeah, it's definitely looking like our toll rates are going to be going up uh, in a significant way. And how about the uh, debut of the I-90 ramp meters? Well, all that's left really is to turn them on, because if you've been there recently, I know you drive that every day. The signs are up, the signals are up. Uh, What I'm hearing from the DOT, we're about a month away from going active, maybe a little less than that. And this is such a change that the state's actually going to unveil a huge public campaign soon to help drivers understand what's happening and why. The ramp meters will be active 
on after the James and Madison exit only lanes on that transition ramp from I-90 to I-5, the collector distributor lanes, basically. They will funnel drivers down to just one lane of traffic entering northbound I-5. There will also be a new active ramp meter from James to northbound I-5. Goal here, of course, to manage all of the traffic entering northbound I-5. And yes, I know what you were saying. How can you put signals on the freeway? How can you put signals on yes, the freeway? We've been, we've been addressing this for years. I've been anticipating this for five or six years now as this has been in the planning. What well, you have to understand that this is not a direct connection from freeway to freeway. As the Department of Transportation coins it, it is a ramp. A ramp. And the state can ramp put meters in on ramps. So that's going to go that's going to be a massive change here coming up. It'll definitely help things on I5, but it's probably not going to be very helpful for people coming over from I90 trying to tie into downtown. But it still is the first traffic light since Boston. Uh pretty much, yeah, yeah. on on that whole corridor now that they took care of uh, Wallace, Idaho. Yes. <laughs> Time for your daily dose of kindness now, brought to you by Robert W. Baird. When she was just three years old, Mackenzie lost her beloved stuffed animal, Rafi. Her family, who moved around for her dad's job in the Army, captured the pair's reunion. And eight years later, they're telling CBS's Steve Hartman why loveys are so special. Whoever coined the phrase military brat get a paper towel. obviously never met the angelic daughter of Army Staff Sergeant Nicholas Pogham and his wife, Jen. Mackenzie is three. And if you look closely at pictures of her over the years, you'll notice something. Raffi is in almost every shot. She always wants to go to bed with it. When she's sick, she wants it. It's like her friend. Jen says this friend has been Mackenzie's constant through their many moves and has been especially comforting during Nick's deployments. When he's gone for weeks and months at a time, she still has this one thing. Had this one thing. Yeah, sorry. It got lost during their most recent move. Losing a lovey really can feel like a very big deal. Where are you, Rafi? Mackenzie first noticed Rafi was missing right before their move from Washington State to Pennsylvania. I'm going to take him to Pennsylvania. Her parents assumed he was in a box somewhere. Not yet. But for 11 long days, Mackenzie had to live without her soulmate. Until finally, at the very end of their unpacking. As soon as Jen found it, I was like, let me record yeah, this we reaction. Yeah, we have to get this. <laughs> they hid Raffi in the refrigerator and told Mackenzie to get a drink. As you would expect, she was delighted to be reunited. <laughs> what is it? But in this moment, Mackenzie made another, even more surprising discovery. <laughs> that a very strange thing happens when you're really, really happy. Choo-choo! <laughs> Now. In all of her life, she'd never been so happy that she cried. He's back, too. It's gotta feel weird the first time. But surrendering to this quirky human trait can be one of life's greatest joys, as I'm sure some of you at home can now attest. Joining us now, Jen, Nicholas, and Mackenzie. You know, you still have Rafi, and I still have the blanket I had 50 years ago. Why do we hold on to these things long after we supposedly, you know, need them? It's something that you have a close connection with and it holds that comfort. And I don't think you can ever really get rid of something like that, voluntarily at least. It helps you go through your emotions and it just makes you love it and care for it more than anything. And we're hoping when she's in college, she's the only college student with her... uh... (laughs) Stuffy, so she has a story to tell. 
I held on to my blanket till Did I you? was 22 years old. And, wow. and as luck would have it, my four and a half year old June came downstairs during that story holding her lovey, which is a little giraffe. June, do you want to tell everybody why you love lovey? Because I like him and he's soft. Mm. Because he's soft. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm going to squeeze my lovey. Oh. <laughs> oh, the joys of working from the home. The joys of working from home, yeah. As for me, I have some of my old electronic parts from where I was a teenager, but that's that's about <laughs> it. They're not soft at all. Now, a year from the Gia Ursula Show is G. Scott. Good morning. Seattle Times reports that there is something like uh, 160, 140,000 electric vehicles in uh, Washington State now. It's like six times what it was a few years ago, mm-hmm. and you're one of them. Yes, I am. My wife and I both, we both have one. And once you, once you start... Ooh, it is hard to get away from. Now, you now. and you and I just spent the entire time during that little bit of a break talking yeah. about why you don't want to go all electric. Well, let's just talk about the vehicles that are on the road. Um, of the hundred and something that are on the road in Washington, there has been an increase over the last five years. It's interesting that most of those, over half of those uh, vehicles are on the western side of the state. Yeah. That's number one. Uh, number two, the really another thing that really stands out is the fact that just vehicles, cars themselves, regular cars, 22%. Uh, the cars are the biggest source of air pollution, contributing to about 22% of the total air pollution and 45% of the state's greenhouse gas emissions. Now, I love to tell you that I that was the reason why I got my electric vehicle. It was not. However... Once I did, the one thing that kind of bothers me a little bit is how expensive they continue to get. Like, if you go back about 2016, 17, you could get, like, some of the, the the I think it was the Leaf. The mm-hmm. Nissan used Nissan, to have a Leaf yeah. that yeah. they would have. And you had, like, the Chevy Bolts. And so those were, like, inexpensive for those. And those, look, it took a while to charge. You only got about 80 miles on those. But right now, the top cars, top vehicles here in the state, as far as the top three, are Teslas. Yeah. Like the Y, the 3, Which model do you X. have? I have the uh, S Plaid. The S Plaid? What yeah. is that? That's the it's, it's, it's nice, Colleen. It's really no, nice. I know it's nice, but tell me what, how it differs from other Teslas. I guess mm, it goes zero to sixty in one point nine nine seconds. I know you uh, like that. It's got three three motors. You gotta have that, boy. Uh, the yeah. one the yes. one that I keep noticing around Edmonds. <laughs> surprise, surprise! Is the uh, Rivian? Have you guys seen yeah, these? Yeah, these are like. You know, back, I was like, they're as much as a house, but of course, no house these days is $100,000. But, you know, back when I was a kid, that seemed like the price of a house. But some of them start, they just start at 75000 Yeah, yeah. That's hard for me to swallow. I well, get the trade off according to the Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, did you look it up, did the you, Rivian? Of course I looked they're it up. They're cute. They're good looking cars. Did you look up the Model S? Yeah. 74000 Oh, I don't see the plaid here. Oh. 85 is what I, I looked 85? it up. Oh, you got it. Okay. Oh, for the plaid? Yeah. Oh, wait. Hold on. That's a sale. Really? <laughs> yes. like, Come that, on, must be, that was a 2021. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 20, yeah, that's a 2021. <laughs> I didn't go to pass the last one. 2023? Are you saving money when you factor in the price of the car? I mean, first of all, yes and no. Mm-hmm. No, because I absolutely paid too much for the car, right? That's mm-hmm. on one hand. But on the other hand, I don't stop off and get gas. So yeah. let's just say 
um, between my wife and her gas because she has the Model Y and we don't get gas. So we probably save, no exaggeration, probably I would say five, six hundred bucks a month. Mm hmm. And gas right there. So if you can total that out, I ain't the best with math. After ten months, that's about that's five or six yeah, grand. Yeah, you drive from Tacoma. You yeah. use a lot of gas. That's right. You so got a long commute. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I just think I think the problem. So, but here is the problem right now. Before I go, is infrastructure. That is the yeah. issue. As of right now, um, they need about twenty times more EV chargers. So the the thing is, is Tesla, Elon Musk, and those guys, they got the lock on the battery deals. Yeah. Any other, you're just trying to f- search and find. That is really hard for you. This is why Elon Musk is because he's so far ahead. It's going to be other car companies that's going to go to Tesla to get yeah. their infrastructure well, they, for charging. They need a universal charger, just like we do for our electronics. Yeah. Otherwise, that yeah, would make you're sense. Stuck. And, and Elon wants to be the guy for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no See kidding. you guys. Thank you, G. G. Scott with Ursula at 9 a.m. On Tuesdays, we go to the New York Times' David Farenthold, who covers Washington, D.C. And, of course, the big news in Washington, D.C. is yet another vote for speaker. Uh, from all the reports I'm hearing, Jim Jordan has it locked up. But I understand that this is this is being staged for maximum drama. They're, they're going uh, roll call by name, member my member. And that's how they always do it. This is a weird, you know, it's unlike any other vote in the House. You actually have to stand up and yell out the name of the person you're going for. And Jordan has used that to his advantage, basically said, you know, if you're going to defy me, you're going to have to stand up and do it right now. Say somebody else's name and tell your voters you're not supporting the guy that Trump supports. So is this tactic going to, uh, I mean, does he need to change any last minute votes here by adopting this tactic or does he have it locked up? He does not have it locked up right now. There were about 55 people who said on Friday that they would never, ever support him. And that's the number is probably down to 10 now. It just shows you the level of spine we're dealing with here. Um, but those 10 say they won't support him. And that's enough because the majority is so thin. That's enough to block him. So, you know, those 10 may hold out for a while or maybe forever. I don't know. Um, but this, I think he sees this as sort of a way of forcing those people to, you know, stand up and do it again and again. And remember, remember, there were people in January who happily stood up and opposed McCarthy again yeah. and again and again, but they were sort of bomb throwers. These are these are moderates who have shown, I mean, the history of the Republican Party in the last seven or eight years, people who said they'll never, ever support a far-right candidate, whether it's Jordan or Trump, have often ended up changing their minds pretty quickly. Yeah, okay, so... What the way it was explained to me by uh, our CBS correspondent there, Scott McFarland, was that this time it's the the moderates who will be uh, punished or shamed if they don't vote, they don't stand up and cast their vote for uh, Jim Jordan, and and presumably uh, Donald Trump is involved in this somehow. Can you explain that aspect of it? Yeah. So basically, these are people who are supposed to, you know, they're they're going to declare publicly that they're going to they oppose Jordan, who's gotten Trump's endorsement, who's gotten, you know, Sean Hannity's campaigning for him. You know, the, the idea is these people can be steamrolled. And it seems like, you know, 40 of them have been steamrolled already in the last like three days. So it, it does seem like that tactic is working. And, the, you know, the premise being these people have more to fear electorally from a primary challenge from another Republican to their right than they do from actually losing a Democrat. And there are some people who are in Biden, Biden won districts and may have to fear that. Um, but I, this is just basically a play on that these people are, are going to fold, that they don't have the spine for this kind of fight. Okay, what about the Matt Gates gang? Who are they supporting? 
Oh, they're Jordan people. I mean, this is so they're Jordan rewarding people. them. Yeah, this is rewarding their tactics. You know, they the, the guy that they picked is now going to be speaker because they refused to go along with McCarthy. Okay, so he's so he's got those eight or ten votes or however much they are now. Now, when McCarthy was lobbying the uh, the Gates gang. He had to grant them all sorts of concessions. Is Jordan the uh, negotiating kind? Is he going to uh, grant any concessions to these moderates, or is the whole pressure ca- is the pressure campaign it? Just sort of uh, shaming them. It seems like it's a pressure rather than negotiations. I mean, maybe he'll say something. One of the possibilities is that he'll you know, promise these some of these folks want to vote on Ukraine aid. That he'll put up a vote for Ukraine aid. But it, to me, it seems more likely to be some empty stylistic promises or promises to get Congress back to working through regular order, things people always say but never do. They're, they don't have the spine or the leverage, I think, to hold up for anything concrete. So that means he will not be pressured, basically, to keep the government open when we... No, we, no I think this means government shutdown is extremely likely. So this, this yeah, this is a recipe for a shutdown. Well, I'm uh, really looking forward to that. Okay, um, let's talk about the the politics of uh, Israel at this point. Mm-hmm. What exactly, I mean, because that's one of the reasons that there seems to be such urgency in electing a speaker. Uh, where will the Jordan majority stand on that? They they will. This is an area where I think they and Biden agree. They will give. They will put a lot of money toward helping Israel, toward you know military aid for Israel or whatever aid for Israel. I think the difference will not be the the idea to give money to Israel. It will be questions over how far Israel should go, how to restrain Israel from committing you know from killing civilians in Gaza. Biden is obviously pressuring them to limit their incursion, limit their tactics to to limit civilian deaths. But a lot of Republicans are saying basically you know the Gaza is you know full of Hamas. Gaza should bear the price of what Hamas did. Okay, but okay, so they'll pass aid to Israel, but then they'll shut down the government, which would lock up that aid? Right, that's true. You have to remember, Jordan has never led anything. He's never been in a position to actually be in charge of something, to make something work. His whole life he's been, on the Hill, he's been a, a gadfly on the Republican right, somebody who's basically, you know, voted no on everything, happily thrown monkey, monkey wrenches in the works to make yeah. a political point. He's never been responsible for actually doing something. So maybe he'll change his mind now. I do think it would be politically very damaging for them if they shut down the government, you know, both for the impact on Israel and the impact on America. But uh, he's never had to lead anything, really. And so I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows how he's going to react. Um, but it, it doesn't seem like the people who've gotten him this power, Matt Gates and those folks, want him to compromise. They want him to be you know, the guy he was out of power now that he's in power. But that would be really crazy at a time when, you know, very few things surprise us. He would vote in favor of Israel because that's uh, these are the people that uh, everybody supports on a bipartisan basis. But then he would be a party to shut down the government so the, the aid can't be paid. Can they shut down the government in a way that makes an exception for the Israeli aid? I mean, I'm sure they would try to. That's what they, every time we've been through government shutdowns, the Republicans have always tried to carve out, well, it's not going to affect the military, or it's yeah. not going to affect veterans, or it's not going to affect Israel. I'm sure they'll try to do that, but I don't think that will work. I mean, the, the, the Democrats have always said, look, you keep the government open. That's your first job. You can't say the government should only work for this group or that group. Um, also, I just think politically, Democrats think this is a huge gift for them. If you know, Jim Jordan drives the Republicans into a ditch and they shut down the government, it, yeah. the Democrats think it helps them politically. Well, yeah. At the risk of sounding uh, even more naive than usual, is is anybody uh, still actually negotiating for regular uh, budget bills to you know come up with some kind of revised and more sensible budget, uh, which which was the whole aim of the the shutdown gambit, after all. 
No, no one's doing that. I mean, that, that's like the, uh, the you know, the constant New Year's resolution of Congress is that we're going to do budgets, you know, in a, in a sort of a regular, predictable way. We're really going to think about how we spend money. Everybody says that, but then no one wants to do the hard work of actually doing that. Everything gets delayed and they just do this stuff at the last minute. So I don't think that anyone's really serious about making the budget process work like that. Yeah. And how is this uh, sudden Biden visit being uh, being received there in uh in Washington, what, what do you think his mission is? I think it, in some ways it is a restraining effort, and it's also a delaying effort. I think they feel like they, you know, the, the longer they can delay the Israeli ground invasion, the longer they give time to like get civilians out of the way, get aid to Gaza, you know, reduce the civilian casualties. And I think Biden has this idea that if he goes there, they won't attack while he's there. Um, so they've had Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, there for a while. Then he's now Biden is going. They didn't close off. They're trying to buy time for the sort of civilians to be helped. David Farenthold from the New York Times. David, thank you. We'll talk next week. Thank you. Let's talk about food banks because it's Mickey time, and she's been looking into the story of the Auburn Community Food Bank, which needs a new headquarters because they've been storing the food outdoors, apparently, which doesn't make sense. No. But they haven't got the money to move there. So That's what's right. the situation here? So they, they had what they thought was enough money to move into the new facility, uh, but, you know, it's... It's life after the pandemic, right? Yeah. There's inflation. Uh, you know, contractors have unfortunately had to raise costs, according to the, you know, according to what I read. And, and executive uh, director Debbie Christian says that they're about 800000 short of what they need. 800000 I believe that is what I heard. Yes, sir. No lies. <laughs> yeah. So the Auburn Food Bank is in desperate need of help. They posted on their Facebook page that um, with their impending move and the expenses that come along with it, they are at risk of not being able to hold their annual holiday dinner basket giveaway for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And that's huge Yeah. because they feed about 600 mouths a week. So, th- so this move has been in the works since 2020? Yeah, they've been planning this for a while. The pandemic hit. And then, of course, they got the funding for this. And then, of course, the building is there. She's got the keys to a door she cannot open. And they are in dire need of help. So so, the, so this is 800000 on top of the funding that they already got? Right, right. The prices oh keep changing. You know, I mean, the price of wood, the price of labor, the price of all of the, uh, all of, all of the tools that they're going to need. I mean, and then you've got building exp- ins- inspections. It's... Etc. So the reason why this story means so much to me, Dave, is because food insecurity is something that I grew up with as a child. Uh, my mom was single. She was back in school. I know what it's like to be at home in the summer and not have access to food and opening up the refrigerator and, and seeing maybe mayonnaise yeah. and ketchup, you know. And it wasn't until my mom finally moved in with my grandparents and I found out that my grandmother's love language is food <laughs> that uh, that we, I overcame that, uh, that Not food just insecurity. your grandmother, by the way. Uh-huh. Everybody's grandmother. Well, my, certainly, my Italian grandmother. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's when I learned about you know all the uh, all the Tex-Mex foods that my grandmother would make: tortillas, beans, frijol, you know, uh, arroz con pollo, enchiladas, um, just every sopapillas. I mean, whatever I wanted, it, it was there at my heart's desire. But I I had food insecurity, and it was so. It was hard. What can we do to help? Because I mean, so, eight hundred is so. 
severe. It is a lot. It is a lot. And um, just sharing the information with people. I mean, and it's not just this food bank. It's not just the Auburn Food Bank. It's food banks across, you know, Washington State and across the country. And what you could do is you could always, you know, go to the Auburn Food Bank uh, website, which is the org. You can make a, a donation. Um, and if you're going to go grocery shopping, please, they ask, you know, consider getting an extra turkey. Turkeys are going to be at your grocery stores any day now. So while you're out there, just pick up an extra turkey drop it off um not only that a 25 dollar uh you know donation will provide a holiday meal for an entire family in mm-hmm. need because their 25 dollars will go a longer way than our 25 dollars you know just going to the store and buying the food and dropping it off because they get they get food at wholesale prices so $25 will feed an entire so, so family. Do they have enough room to store the food because they're still at the old building? Or so they- I believe that they are running out of room is what the story said. They are running out of room. They do have a lot of food, but they need those cash donations. As a matter of fact, uh, Debbie Christian did say uh, that as of today, they don't have holiday money. So that means that, you know, the Thanksgiving baskets and the Christmas baskets that they hand out, uh, they're in jeopardy of not being able to uh, help the community. And so all the the pandemic funding has run out. It's all it's all run out. City has nothing. And so so what's the what's the timeline here? So uh, it's urgent. I mean, it's it's just it's dire. It's urgent. They've I mean, got the question, to get it. Do they, do they literally have to close down at some point if they don't get the money? That is a question that I am waiting to hear from Debbie yeah. Christian. Those are all the questions that I'm trying to uh, get from her. I know that she is out of office today, yesterday, and uh, she might be out of office today. I'm going to reach out to them to again to find out. So does this mean that the doors close? What is what does this mean? Because this new facility is supposed to actually be like walking into a grocery store, grabbing the food, yeah. and then going, which which would be amazing for the community. Now, you, you said that they had the keys. So in other words, the the rehab work on the new building has mm-hmm. been done already. That is another so, question that I'm trying to find out from Debbie. It? Oh, I see. Yeah, the building is built, um, but it's not completely done. They had There's more work to be done. But again, she's got keys to a building that she can't open and say, okay, let's go. Let's start. Let's start okay. moving all the things in. No, they're, they're, but it they're shy. Like it's not, so in other words, it sounds like it's not turnkey ready. they got to raise the money to finish the job before they can actually move That's their operation That's what it sounds there. like, absolutely. And hopefully Debbie Christian will give me those answers today. She's with the Auburn Food Bank. She's the executive director. I love this organization because they do so much to help the community. I know that they're very short and they haven't been handing out any monetary funds Mm -hmm. lately. Like they do help people with gas. Uh, They give out gas cards. So um, I believe that those have stopped as well. And so I would just love it if we could, you know, come together as a community and help out because there are so many people in need and the Auburn Food Bank helps out tremendously as much as they can. All right. So we'll find out more tomorrow. I'm hoping. I hope so. Gotta 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 get hold of Debbie Christian needs to call me back. So if she's listening, give Debbie, me a call. Call Mickey. Yes. Thanks, Mickey. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 9:30. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the daily dose of kindness.